Good morning, everyone, uh, including those of you that are here in this place, those of you that are meeting up at the chapel. We know you're there, and God bless you as you worship there. Also, those of you who are meeting in one of our regionals in uh, Bridgeland or Airdrie or in the northwest part of Calgary at the Crowfoot Theaters. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus was walking with his disciples near Caesarea Philippi in the northern part of Israel. And as they were walking, he stopped and he looked at his disciples and he said, Who do people say that I am? Now the disciples knew that the religious leaders of that day, they had little good to say about Jesus. Most of what they said about him was that he was a blasphemer, that he was a false prophet, that he was a madman. And so they didn't make reference to that. But they also knew that the common people of that day were very fond of Jesus. And so they quoted those folks. And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus looked them in the eye and he said, but what about you? Who do you say? that I am. And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. If Jesus were to look you in the eye and ask you, who do you say that I am? How would you respond? It is probably the most important question we'll ever be asked. Because Matthew 25 describes of a day A day is coming when our response to Jesus will affect the trajectory of our lives. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. In John 11, verse 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live. In other words, will have eternal life, even though he dies. Jesus claimed to be the way to eternal life, and he demands a response from each and every one of us. So what will you do with Jesus and his claims? We're in a series of messages in which we are reviewing what it is we believe as Christians. We're examining the core beliefs of the Christian faith because research is showing us that the majority of people who refer to themselves as Christians today have little idea of what they believe or why they believe it. And this is truly unfortunate because you see, your beliefs impact who you are, how you see yourself, your identity. Your beliefs impact your values and morals. They impact the way you live your life. As a man thinketh, so is he. Now we've just completed the first part of this series by looking at what the Bible teaches about who God is. And we move on now to set our sights on what the Bible has to say about Jesus. But before we get into it, I want us to join together in prayer. Would you stand with me, please? 
Our Heavenly Father, it saddens me, Lord, when I think about so many people who refer to themselves as Christians who know so little about you, who spend so little time in the Scriptures to understand you better, who take such few steps, Lord, to trust you and to grow in their faith in you and to experience your faithfulness. I pray, Lord, that that would not be the case of anyone in this room. And I want to ask, oh God, that you would help us to stay focused today on what it is you want to say to us about who you are. I pray that you would uh, soften our hearts and, Lord, you would give us the will to respond in whatever way you would have us to. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. And so who is Jesus of Nazareth? You know, few people will dispute the fact that Jesus was a real person who walked the face of this earth around 2,000 years ago. Historically, you really can't dispute that. In fact, according to the research conducted by Angus Reid, most people in our country not only believe that Jesus was a real person, but they believe that he was a good man. And down through history, some of the most brilliant minds have expressed this sentiment. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, one of the great intellects of France, who opposed Christianity openly, he admitted in his Emily near the end of his life that there could be no comparison between Socrates and Christ, as little as between a sage and God. Lord Byron wrote, if ever man was God, or God was man. Jesus Christ was both. Leo Tolstoy, former atheist and the great genius of Russian letters, he wrote this, for 35 years of my life, I was a nihilist, a man who believed in nothing. Five years ago, I believed in Jesus. And my whole life underwent a sudden transformation. Life and death ceased to be evil. Instead of despair, I tasted joy and happiness that death could not take away. Down through time, thousands of influential people have testified that Jesus was the greatest man who ever lived. A man who lived an exemplary life. A man who taught with unusual wisdom. But obviously, just a man suggest that Jesus was anything more than a man and many will just either turn you off or they will just tell you to take a hike. And you see, it is utterly inconsistent to call Jesus a good man or even a great man or a model of morality and then go on to say, but I don't believe that Jesus is God. And here's why. Because this good man, this wise teacher, claimed in no uncertain terms that he is God. And that assertion doesn't give us the option of concluding that he was simply a nice guy. Because a good man wouldn't lie about this. Jesus made statements about himself that clearly communicated that he was more than just a teacher or a prophet. 
Other religious leaders, like Buddha and Confucius, they pointed people away from themselves, saying things like, this is the truth as I understand it to be. This is the way that you should go. Jesus, on the other hand, pointed people toward himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Follow me. He was the only significant religious leader to say such things and to make such claims about himself. My purpose in this message is to show that Jesus is more than just a good man. But in fact, he is God, the second person of the Godhead, the Holy Trinity. And even as he called the people of his day to follow him, he calls us to make a decision about him. A decision that has huge implications both for our present and our future. A decision that involves more than just mental assent. Like I believe in Jesus. Remember the devil believes in Jesus, folks. It is more than just mental assent. Now, in order to do this, I will need to pull the camera lens back and explore what the Bible says about the Trinity. This is important because I find many people are confused about the relationship between God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, our tendency as humans is to compare ourselves with others. In every area of endeavor, if you think about it, whether it's academics or sports or economics, we love to determine uh, who's the greatest. I mean, that's why we have the Stanley Cup and the Memorial Cup and the Great Cup and the Super Bowl and the Olympic medals and an assortment of other trophies. These are all sought after by individuals who want to be seen as the greatest or at least want to determine or know who is the greatest. Former heavyweight boxing champion Muhammad Ali he had a rather high opinion of himself. And on one occasion, he told a flight attendant that he wasn't putting his seatbelt on because in his words, I'm Superman. And Superman don't need seatbelts. <laughs> the spunky stewardess rolled her eyes and said, yeah, well, Superman don't need planes either. <laughs> so buckle up, buddy. But my point is the tendency to compare, to seek after who is the greatest, spills over into our understanding of the Trinity. Our natural inclination is to wonder if one member of the Godhead is greater than the other. For example, some people believe wrongly that God the Father is the real God. Whereas Jesus is the created Son of God, and the Holy Spirit, well, is a force or a spirit manifestation of the real God. There's a lot of confusion surrounding the Trinity, and this impacts how we look at God. This impacts how we pray to God. It impacts how we worship Him. Some people reject the Trinity because the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. And they're absolutely right. You won't find the word Trinity in your Bible. But you won't find the word Bible in the Bible either. <laughs> but that doesn't mean 
you write the Bible off because of it. Trinity is simply a Latin word meaning three in the unity of one and is a theological term that we use to describe what God has clearly revealed to us in his word. So what does God reveal to us about himself in the Bible? As we're going to see in a few moments, the Bible teaches three fundamental truths about the Trinity. The first truth is this. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct persons. Now, human analogies are, are always inadequate when trying to describe God because he is so much greater and so much more complex than our imagination. But perhaps, you know, this will help a little bit. Over here, we've got three stools to my right. And to help us picture this very first truth, I'd like you to imagine that the Father occupies one of those stools, the Son occupies another one of those stools, and the Holy Spirit occupies the third stool. Now, the second truth is this. Each person occupying these stools is fully God. In other words, they each have all of the attributes of God that we went through. In the sense that they're all eternal, they're all all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present, holy and just, loving and gracious, good and trustworthy. They are co-equal. They are co-eternal. So far, so good. Now we come to the third truth, a truth that we as human beings have a hard time grasping in combination with the other two truths. The third truth is this. There is only one God. These three persons are not three individual gods. They are one God in three persons. God in essence is one. God in person is three. There are, uh, they are one God, not only because they are totally one in their nature or their attributes, but also because they are totally one in their love for one another. These three really love and enjoy each other. They are experiencing a depth of intimacy and fellowship and love that we as humans have been looking for all of our lives. These three divine persons are equal in every way and have always been in relationship with each other. They are different only in how they relate to one another and the roles that they play. God is not three parts. God is three persons. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are still all involved in all that God does. When you pray to the Father, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are taking all of it in as well. For example, the Bible says all three persons of the Godhead were involved in creating the universe. Isaiah 64 verse 8 tells us that the Father is the creator. Colossians 1, 15 to 17 says that the Son is the creator. Over in Job chapter 33 verse 4 says the Holy Spirit is the creator. 
Now, the reality is we will never fully grasp as human beings uh, uh, this concept of the Trinity because we function in three dimensions and God functions in who knows how many dimensions. That's why he's God and we're not. Our human mind can't rationally compute the Trinity as it's laid out in Scripture, but that doesn't mean that it's not true. You know, I don't have a clue about the inner workings of my computer or how I get what I get on my computer screen. In other words, my middle name is not computer geek, all right? But I still believe in my computer and I use it daily. I don't understand all of the intricate workings of electricity and how it works on the grid and all the rest of it. But I plug in my computer believing it's going to do what electricity does. In the same way, we may not understand the Trinity, but God wants us to trust Him and His teaching on this and to live with the tension of those things that we can't quite get our minds wrapped around. Okay, with that overview in mind, let's examine the biblical evidence for the Trinity. Dr. Ron Carlson, to whom uh, I want to give credit for his keen thoughts on the Trinity, he says, if we can show in the scriptures that there are three persons who are each called God, and that the Bible also teaches that there is only one God, then we have proven that the Trinity is a biblical truth. So first of all, does the Bible teach there is only one God? Absolutely. Let me just give you a, a few of many verses I could give. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, For there is one God. Galatians 3, verse 20 says, God is one. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 45, verse 22 says, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. No question, the Bible teaches there is only one God. So keep that in mind as secondly, we now ask the question, is there a father in the Bible who is also called God? Well, turn in your Bibles uh, to 2 Peter chapter 1, 16. 2 Peter chapter 1, 16. There is what, this is what we read there. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the who? The Father. When the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Here we have a father who is called God who gives honor and glory to the son. Furthermore, is there a Holy Spirit in the Bible who is also called God? Well, now turn over to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Now, this is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. 
And this couple, basically what they did was they sold a piece of property and they vowed to give the Lord all of the money that they had received. They voluntarily did that. This is something they wanted to do. However, after they sold the land, they got some of that hard, cold cash into their hands. They thought to themselves, wow, this is a lot of money. Not sure we want to give this all to the Lord's work. And so they decided to keep some of it back. However, they tried to make it appear like they actually gave it all to God. Not a good idea. God saw the hypocrisy. And in verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 3, the Apostle Peter says to Ananias, How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to whom? The Holy Spirit. Lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to whom? But to God. In verse 3, the Apostle Peter tells Ananias that you've lied to the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, he says, you haven't lied to people, you have lied to God, indicating that the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit's deity is also seen in the words of Jesus in Matthew 28, verse 19, when he said, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In this verse, Jesus links the Holy Spirit with the Father and the Son, a most unlikely association if the Holy Spirit was anything less than God. So then, fourthly, we come back to our original question about the deity of Christ. Is there a son in the Bible, and is he called God? The short answer is yes, yes, and again I say yes. There are an unbelievable number of scriptural support for Christ's deity. It is simply overwhelming. I'm just going to touch on a few. Turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, we know this is speaking about Jesus Christ. Because if you look down to verse 14, this is what we read. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And so verse 1 could actually read like this. In the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. He was God from before the creation of the world, before the creation of time. Now turn over to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. God the Father is being referred to here, and in verse 8 we read, but about the Son, he says, God the Father says this about the Son, your throne, O God, 
will last forever and ever. God the Father points to his son. Jesus clearly refers to him as God. Now turn to Revelation chapter 1. And look down at verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. In this verse, God the Father refers to himself as the Alpha and the Omega, which means the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now look down to verse 17. Same chapter. This is John speaking. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. Now, folks, if this is referring to God the Father, I ask you, when did God the Father die? Obviously, God the Father didn't die. God the Son died. This is referring to Jesus. So God the Father says, I am the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. God the Son says, I am the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. Furthermore, Jesus did things that only God could do. For example, he forgave sins. Turn over to Mark. Mark chapter 2. Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The religious leaders here of that day are admitting that Jesus was doing what only God alone could do. And Jesus went on to show that he had authority to forgive sins by actually healing that paralyzed man. Now turn over to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. In this chapter and many others, um, the religious leaders were just peppering Jesus with all kinds of questions and making all kinds of accusations, threatening his life, in fact. And one of the statements that Jesus makes, among many others in this chapter, is found in verse 30, where Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And then look what the very next verse says. Again, the Jews, again, this is not the first time. <laughs> again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. You see, the religious leaders, I mean, we can read passages like this and say, well, you know, you can interpret it like this, you can interpret it like that. But the religious leaders of that day, they were not confused about what Jesus was saying about himself here. They knew 
that he was referring to himself as God. And that is why they wanted to stone him for blasphemy. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is God. It also affirms that Jesus understood himself to be God. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus said things and he did things that communicated in no uncertain terms that he was no ordinary man, that he was in fact God. I mean, think of a person that you know, someone that you look up to, a godly person, a good person, a wise person. I know it might take a few minutes, but have you got somebody in mind, all right? Who is that person to you? Now, what would you think if this person were to begin saying to you things that Jesus said about himself. I mean, contemplate with me for a moment some of the things that Jesus actually said about himself. Jesus said to those who were hungry for love, those who were hungry for security, those who were hungry for significance, he said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus said to those who were facing despair, disillusionment, and darkness, he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus said to those who were facing a fear of death, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And Jesus said to those who were totally wrapped up in the temporary things of life, only concerned about the here and now, he said to those, heaven and earth will pass away. Just keep that in mind, folks. But my words will never pass away. Jesus said to those seeking truth, answers about the afterlife. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus said to those who, uh, who were lonely, to those who were timid in their faith, he said, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, think again about that godly, good, and wise person that you look up to. If that person turned to you one day and began to make statements like this and was serious, what would you think about that person? You obviously would have to make a decision about that person, wouldn't you? You'd have to write him off as a liar or you might have to conclude that he needs psychiatric assessment. C.S. Lewis, the brilliant professor of Cambridge University, was once a great skeptic of Jesus Christ and also of the Christian faith. But after thoroughly examining the evidence, he made a decision to embrace Jesus as his Savior and Lord. He then wrote this, I am trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing 
that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Christ as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He never intended to. Lewis rightly states that if Jesus lied about who he was, then it is foolish to call him a truly good person because a good person wouldn't lie about his true identity. Only a lunatic would do this. And yet when you examine the life and the character of Jesus, when you examine the wonderful works that he performed, the amazing teachings, it is nigh impossible to conclude that he was a lunatic. Dr. J.T. Fisher, a renowned psychiatrist, studied the teachings of Jesus and said this, if you were to take the sum total of all the authoritative articles ever written by the most qualified psychologists and psychiatrists on the subject of mental hygiene, and you were to combine them and refine them and cleave out the excess verbiage, and if you were to have these unadulterated bits of pure scientific knowledge expressed by the most capable poets, you would have an awkward an incomplete summation of Christ's Sermon on the Mount. It would suffer immeasurably in comparison. For nearly 2,000 years, the Christian world has been holding in its hands the complete answer to its restless and fruitless yearnings. Here rests the blueprint for successful human life. So what is he saying? He's saying, does a blueprint for successful human life of unequaled wisdom and value come from the lips of a lunatic? Of course not. It just cannot be that Jesus is a liar or a lunatic. And folks, that leaves us with only one other option. And that is that his claims are true. He said he was God because he is God. Now folks, if Jesus Christ is God as he claimed to be, then this truth has radical implications for our lives. If Jesus is God, then his teachings are more than just good ideas that we may want to read once in a while. No, they are divine truths that I can trust and build my life on. If I ignore his teachings or his promises, I will miss his very best for my life. 
And this is one of the things that concerns me is the little hunger that so many people who call themselves Christians have for God's word. Furthermore, if Jesus is God, then I can trust him to get me to heaven. When Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, he wasn't kidding. He wasn't saying things that he couldn't back up. No, this is a promise from God Almighty himself that we can stake our life, that we can stake our eternity on. Furthermore, because Jesus is God, we can know that whatever he calls us to do, he will empower us to do. We can trust him to direct our paths that he will use us, he will use our prayers to see his will done on earth as it is in heaven. We can count on him to live in us and through us through the power of his Holy Spirit and to do the things that he did while he was here on earth, including seeing the sick made well, the captives set free, the hungry fed, the naked clothed, the abused delivered, the alienated restored and the spiritually lost redeemed. We can trust him to be with us and to live his life through us. Because Jesus Christ is God, I can know that my sins are truly forgiven. And friends, let's not take this well-known truth for granted. You know, people often wonder why it is so important to the Christian faith that Jesus is God. They say, why can't I not believe that Jesus is just the good man? Why can I not believe that Jesus is a created angel the way Jehovah Witnesses do? Why can I not believe that that Jesus is a spirit child of, of God the Father as the Mormons do? Why does Jesus have to be God? Well, because the Bible teaches, as we just discussed, that he is God. But also because if Jesus were less than God, his sacrificial death on the cross for you and me would have been inadequate. Wouldn't have done the job. Dr. Ron Carlson says when we sin, we need to understand that it is an immeasurable offense against a holy God. An infinite price must therefore be paid to satisfy his justice and his righteousness more than any finite being or created angel could ever pay. But you see, by his sacrifice on the cross, Jesus, the God-man, paid the penalty in full. The apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.4 that Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the tree. 
Only God in human flesh can do that. Only he, the sinless God, man could, uh, could, could be, accept, could be a, a, an acceptable sacrifice for our sins. Only he could pay the infinite price demanded by all the sins of the world, past, present, and future. That's why in Revelation 5 we read how everyone will one day fall down before Jesus and worship him as Jesus Christ the Lamb singing, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men from God from every tribe and language, people and nation. Friends, I, I can't imagine entrusting my eternity to a created being. I can know that my sins are forgiven because the God-man Jesus was slain. He paid for my sins and your sins through the shedding of his blood on the cross. To him be all the honor and the glory and the praise. And so I ask you again, what will you do with Jesus and his claims? You can reject him if you want, but you will be held accountable for that decision on Judgment Day. Read Matthew 24 and 25. The other alternative is to embrace him by faith. And that doesn't mean that you throw your brains away. It doesn't mean that you have answers to every question or every doubt. It means that in light of all that you know about Jesus, you come to him and you say, Oh, Jesus, forgive me. Cleanse me. Invade my life. And live your life through me. In a moment, we're going to celebrate Christ's death and resurrection. And I can't think of a better time than for you to call out to him if you don't know him yet personally. And for you to call out to him and to ask him to forgive you and to come into your life and to make you the person that he created you to be. I can't think of a better time for those of us who already know Jesus to give thanks to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit for the role that they have played and are playing in our redemption and in the freedom and the victory that we enjoy each and every day. I can't think of a better time to give praise to Jesus, for he is worthy. His sacrifice at Calvary is adequate. Our sins have been washed away. To him be all the praise and glory. Let's take a moment prepare our hearts and convey our praise and our thanks to God. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you today because you are the all-powerful, all-knowing, the every, everywhere present one. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, your goodness, your grace and for saving us from our sins and loving us despite our failures and our sins.
Jesus, we long to be in close relationship with you. And so we confess to you those times that we've gone our own way rather than your own way. Those times that we've not involved you in our day. We've just taken you and your grace, your presence for granted. Cleanse us of sin. Renew us by your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and magnify your holy name. I ask, Lord, that you would bless and sanctify with your word and spirit these gifts of bread and the fruit of the vine. Lord, that we receiving them may be partakers of the divine nature through Jesus Christ our Lord, who taught us when we pray to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.